Hello and welcome to another Adventures in .NET episode. I'm Sean Kleber, your host, and with me today on the panel is Caleb Wells. Hey, hey yo. And Wailu. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing, doing good. And we have Charles Maxwood. Hey, everybody. And our guest today is someone I think a lot of you know and probably love. His name's Richard Campbell from .NET Rock. Hey, Richard. Well, hello. Hey. Hey, hey. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv, and I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community, and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show, though, is React Roundup. And every week, we bring in people from the React community, and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. I like this job where I don't have to do any of the organizing and planning. I just have to answer. That's just <laughs> cool. This is a fun seat to sit in. Just so you know, we really don't do any organizing and planning either. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I've been a victim of Richard's, I mean, um, <clears throat> a guest on .NET Rocks. And uh, we're very a happy while to ago, Chuck. Boy, oh boy, I'm trying to think back. Was that the panel show we did in Vancouver? No, that's, that's where we met. Right, but right. You, you had me on to talk about finding a job and stuff. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Cool topic. Oh, yeah. Your new book. Yes. Right. Yes. The book is now out on paperback. Right. But by the time this goes live, the audio book will probably be available too, which I keep getting asked about. So did you voice it? I am going to read it myself. Yes. Mm -hmm. As well. You should. I have all this audio equipment from this hobby of mine. Yeah. Well, you know, right. never going to amount to anything, but at least you can voice a, 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 a an audio book or two. Yep. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't care for podcasting myself. I find it goes. Well, I was going to say podcasting has not done anything. At all. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, man. So, Richard, you know, thanks for, for taking the time out of your... Oh, no, my, my pleasure. And, you and you've got... Yeah, and your timing was great. You've got one of the busiest schedules, I think, you know, I can think of. You've got multiple podcasts. Mm -hmm. You've got conferences that you organize. You've got a book that you're writing. You've got the Humanitarian Toolbox. You know, what else can you put on your plate? Yeah, well, I'm, I keep thinking of more things. You know, if you look at it, it all sort of holds together the same way, which is thinking about and, and helping the developer community with what's next, the next three to six months. You know, the, the, the nice thing as a Podcast creator perspective is I get to talk to everybody in advance. I get to talk to the best and brightest all the time and help put those stories together. And the conference is very much the same concept, right? It's, well, we're planning these things six months in advance. What are folks going to need to know six months from now? And HD Box was just an outgrowth of that in the sense that I became very aware that the software developers were struggling to contribute their skills to charity and that we could, mm. we could build an infrastructure to make it easier for them to do that. Very cool. You know, where did developing and exposure to .NET start for you? Very early on. My father's an electrical engineer, electronics engineer, really. He built cash registers. And so I, electronics is in my blood, right? I, my, my, some of my earliest memories are soldering iron in hand. And I stumbled uh, after school at the tender age of 10, I was, went into a radio shack and I was actually buying parts for an electronic rocket countdown timer because I liked model rocketry. 
But that mm-hmm. whole five, four, three, two, one, way too much work. Couldn't do that. <laughs> so uh, I was actually get, had a little device using a five by five timer that was going to count down for me with an LED display because that's how lazy I am. And there was a TRS-80 Model 1 in the corner of the store. And this is mm-hmm. 1977, right? As I found out years later, the Tandy Corporation that owned Radio Shack at the time did not think the machine would sell. And so they literally only manufactured enough machines to put one in every store. So I was literally fiddling around with one of a few thousand of these Tourist 80 Model 1s. And it had me from that moment. I didn't know that would become my career. I was 10, but I wasn't interested in anything else after that. And so that was after school every day. And I think the store tolerated me mostly because if a 10-year-old can make this work, then why can't this executive make it work? And so it was, it was, very, it was mutually beneficial. My first job at 12 was working at a company called H&S Microsystems, and we were repairing TRS-80s. That was also that was the hobbyist era of microcomputers. We did upgrades for them. The, the TRS-80 did not come with a lower case. There was a lower case kit you could get and install, or you could have us install it for you. And we did memory expansions and that sort of thing. So, I mean, I've really done nothing else than work in the computer industry in one form or another. About the same time that, yeah, that I started, I started in 79, I think it was uh, the Model 2 was at that time with the TRS-80. Yeah, Model 2 had a bug in it that you could actually poke a port on the Model 2 that would pop the power supply for the electron deflector. And I only know, and I remember this because we fixed them. The, the H&S, it was literally a command you could issue and it would damage the screen. The screen would shut off and <laughs> would never come back on again. And so the guy, Neil, the guy who ran that shop, one of the things I did as the kid was make a parts kit. So he would order, we'd sort of guess how many Model 2s were going to come in in the next three months. He would order the parts in bulk because they were so much cheaper. And then I would spend my days with little plastic baggies putting the parts sets together. And so when you got out, when a, bad, when a Model 2 screen pop came in, you grabbed a little baggie off and you went to a workstation and you installed that repair as quickly as possible. You know, that's how we made money. Yeah. That's I think awesome. we had more problems with the cassette tape drives than, than the machines themselves. But yeah, that's another story. Yeah, I had three jeweler screwdrivers sort of stuffed into my cassette tape player so I could continuously adjust azimuths as necessary. <laughs> so it sounds like where you get all the geek out, uh, you know, ability is from your dad. Well, my mother is the is a fiction author too. So you figure got a storyteller on one side and an engineer on the other. I really had no chance. Yeah, (laughs) no chance at all, man. That's how that's going to go. Well, you turned out well, right? You've got the you're a good storyteller, and uh, you're obviously very good with computers. You make me feel bad. My first job was you know picking up carts at the grocery store and putting them back. (laughs) A very normal job, right? And, And look, I I don't for a moment, say anything other than I got lucky, Mm. right? Like I just right place, right time, whatever reason this engaged my brain and kept it. Like it's just good luck. It sounds like, um, which, you know, obviously everything you're doing so much and it's all got to do with .NET. Um, have you like previously worked for Microsoft or anything? I've never worked for Microsoft, although I've done a number of different kinds of contract gigs over the years. I was adjacent to Microsoft for a long time, right? I mean, if you think back to the 70s and 80s, Microsoft was just a language company. You know, I I remember seeing a young Bill Gates at Heathkit in Vancouver 
when the Heathkit started making their PC, the, the Heathkit company was a kit company. So you, you bought your, your machine unassembled. You had to put it together yourself. And Bill was pitching hard when the Heathkit PC came out because the basic unit used a quick basic, which was really small. But if you bought the upgrade kit, if you bought the advanced one, you could use a Microsoft basic and it was vastly superior. And so Bill was literally hawking it himself. And that's got to be maybe 1980 that he came up to do that. So that was an interesting experience. Yeah, um, that's about right. Yep. When the IBM PC came out, I was in the CPM at the time. Uh, I found when I wanted to own a computer, a lot of those pre-built machines, they were just too expensive. And I was good with the soldering iron. So I bought an S100 bus chassis and put together the parts on an, on an 8080 machine myself, like the largely kit parts. And so I was, that was, those were mostly CPM machines. So I, I was working in CPM and, and programming in uh, 8080 assembler. And uh, there was a couple of flavors of basic and stuff out there at the time. So when the IBM PC first came out, it came with CPM. You know, they, this MS-DOS version one, it wasn't going to amount to anything. So, hmm. we, you know, I was happy to work in, in CPM and that, do the programming that way. Is there a, um, a period of Microsoft, right? We're, we'll discuss your book and you've done several videos on the history of .NET. But is there sure. a period that you, that you really appreciate or that you have really good memories from? You know, it was a challenge to win me over to Windows. If you're an old school mm -hmm. computer person, you're worse, used to working on the command line. And I was writing a lot of software in, in DBase or the compiled version Clipper, you know, sure. using 80 by 25 screens efficiently, right? Largely monochrome screens. I guess I saw no reason to go to color screens. They were awful and ugly anyway. If you're just trying to get work done, like this was efficient. And along comes this GUI. I'm like, eh. But the mouse is the thing that appalled me. Like, you're going to take your hand <laughs> off the keyboard? Like, what, what are you thinking? That's insane. Because, you know, at that time, we're, I'm working in automation. I'm helping people enter more orders. And so keystroke efficiency was everything. That's what we cared about. And so taking a hand off the keyboard just seemed like, like plain foolishness. You figure a way to do that. What won me to Windows, the first time I'm like, all right, you can stay, was the driver model. You know, I was making money as a consultant, and this is in the 80s, at, you know, 20-something years old, doing the intersection of drivers. So I'm sitting with a client who's going to run Symphony, right, which is five different products, and it's got a set of printer drivers in it. And they're going to run the, this accounting package, and it's got this set of printer drivers. Right? We're literally trying to figure out, out of the half a dozen pieces of software they're going to use, what printer appears in all of their driver sets. Ouch. Not all of them do, and 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 so and then you'd sort it out, and I would help help them source the printer. It's like, okay, well here's here's a half dozen printers that will fit in this set, and there were mostly line printers of various kinds. Which one has the features that would make sense for you, and then then we could actually configure it. So when Windows comes along and it takes over the driver problem, I was working with a company at the time that was doing automated faxing, everybody's favorite technology, and. Working with faxes was a pain in the butt. And then when I looked at the way Windows did it, where it was just a print context that you could code against this print context, there's no difference between a printer and a fax machine except a couple of additional parameters. I'm like, mm -hmm. well, that's genius. Then I started programming in C++ on Windows, and that is not genius. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the C++, the Windows, or both? 
Well, just, you know, you, you run the, you run your code, it, you UAC the machine before, you know, the B saw the, the original hanging of windows was called the UAC uh, okay. and it would hang and you're like, ah, and you have to reboot the machine and you don't know what the heck happened. I eventually invested in a device called a periscope board. They were expensive. They're almost as much as the PC because they essentially were a PC that lived inside of your, your IBM PC. They, they were an uh, 8-bit ISA card, and it had a big red plunger on it. And so when Windows hung, and I'm saying when, not if, mm-hmm. you'd hit the <laughs> plunger, and literally what it did was it dumped memory into the card. It would take a, a oh, stack wow. dump there. Then you could reboot the machine. The, mem- the, the, the card still got the memory buff, and then do your stack traces, try and figure out what went wrong. Wow. Very so that, cool. It, it was hard. And yeah, I, had, I can I, imagine. And I had a VGA screen, and then I also had a Hercules card, so I had a, a monochrome screen as well. And that, because it used different memory locations, I would use the Hercules card as the debug screen, so I could dump stuff in my code to the Hercules card, independent of the VGA, which was shown Windows. Anyway, it was it was an interesting time, but the productivity when you got that code to work. It was profound. And then when I, I found Visual Basic in like 1992, then that changed everything. Because VB, suddenly I could program against Windows and have adva- the advantage of all those drivers. But you weren't hanging the machine anymore. I'm not saying the program worked. I'm saying when it failed, you weren't actually hanging the PC anymore. And that was a huge, I switched instantly. Like this is, it takes too long to code to C++. And VB does, we were still building forms over data, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it worked against SQL Server. Like it was, this is even before ODBC came along. It was very powerful. Like this, our ability to get work done, it just it leveled up. Those were fun times, like very interesting market. Before 32-bit really took hold, that 16-bit era, Visual Basic had this great ecosystem around it. There was all kinds of component vendors of, that made stuff for that, VBXs for VB. And I, I really enjoyed myself then. We were doing LANs, but the internet really wasn't public, and it wasn't for that sort of thing anyway. Like those were pretty happy, simple times, and you were you were improving the performance of capabilities of your company hugely. Like it, it made a big difference what we what we were building. A small team, three or four people, we get a lot done. So, so looking back, do you think it's um it's easier to be a developer now or in the past? Or like it sounds like it was really difficult in the past, but nowadays. It's easy to become a developer, but uh, the problems are more complex. I think they're more diverse. A lot of low-hanging fruit has been picked too, but mm-hmm. you know, we you think about the complexities. You come into the '90s when the internet becomes a public and commercial thing. We're introducing a whole new wave, right? Like we're really thinking differently all of a sudden. We've gotten our PCs connected together inside of our offices. There are a few online services. The 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 CompuServe's and Genies of the world, which are all get mowed down when the internet turns public and the ISPs so show up. But I mean, most of that happens after the dot-com. You know, the dot-com boom was this period of insanity. And right. so, it, you know, as it come out of that, we start rationalizing what's the web really going to be about, where we're going to go with it. We think very differently. What gets hard for a developer is the diversity part. You know, it was fun to code when all the screens were 80 by 25. We knew the constraints we were living in, and you could sort of make that work. You were living in that constraint. Then along came Windows, and while it added a, you know, for the most part, the screens were 1024 by 768, right? I mean, that's what you coded to. Mm-hmm. You weren't worried about higher resolutions. For the that. longest time, yeah. Yeah, and Visual Basic had a 
a UX language that was the MDI-SDI form where, you know, file is on the left and help is on the right. And so you were guided as to what the UI would look like. So that says things are fairly simple, even if the programming tools are not that sophisticated. But as the internet comes into play and HTML becomes a thing and how you build web pages, well, boom, hey, my logo is on fire, right? Like you, you suddenly have all this insanity and that diversity has only grown, right? After the internet came mobile, right? Now we're suddenly living in a world where you're, you're now coding on a very different machine than what your code's going to run on. And now the cloud where, okay, well, there's still computers that just not yours. You're buying them, you're using them by the minute and you don't necessarily know where they are. So, you know, I think the iPhone singularly more than anything caused the average consumer to have much higher expectations for what software could do. The expectations of the customer have changed dramatically and the diversity of the input and output devices have changed dramatically. That's the harder part for a developer today. The programming languages are hardly the problem. They've only gotten better. Our tooling's gotten better. But the problem space we're tackling is vast in comparison to 30 years ago. As technology continues to evolve, uh, we come up with new ways of, of doing things or handling things or how to write this or code that. It, it's a lot these days. I, I will agree with that. Yeah, and, and I think people carving off niches for themselves. You know, if you can find a space where somebody's going to keep you employed to work in a particular tool set or a particular set of problems. I don't blame anybody for hunkering down to that space. I have the good fortune of spending most of my time being told what everybody's working on and trying to make good stories around that. There's a lot of people working on a lot of things like the diversity is only getting larger. We may look back on this particular period as kind of a calm time in software development. Whatever technology looks to replace the smartphone, and I suspect it's going to be some kind of visor, that's going to be a gold rush of epic proportions. And uh, we're going to be in huge demand, but boy, we're going to have a big tooling shift when everybody's wearing their computer on their face. So you think Google Glass is is the next thing, like like a better Google Glass, you think? Well, you look at what what Microsoft's doing with HoloLens 2 in the industrial spaces right now. Mm-hmm. Right, literally a hard hat with a pair of goggles strapped to it and some battery packs and things. I feel like we're in the BlackBerry phase of the, the visor of uh, augmented reality, mm-hmm. where certain large enterprises are building certain classes of applications for certain workers. In the early days of BlackBerry, were very much like that. It was an enterprise-only product, and for, for putting email into certain key people's hands, it was expensive and complex. It took a team to operate. But it began the smartphone movement, even if they didn't realize they were beginning a movement. And we we're sort of in that stage right now. The first industrial implementations of augmented reality are coming true. There were sessions at Ignite this year that were about ERP and augmented reality. Like that to me is pretty cool. Like we're starting to see the first examples of that. The consumer product is further away. But nobody in the 90s playing with a BlackBerry could predict the iPhone, least of all BlackBerry. Yeah. A few years ago, I actually um, tried the um, the HoloLens. It's the first one, and you know, I've tried different various VR things, and I always thought it was really cool. But I think at the, at the stage where you can literally just put, you know, they're small enough to be put into a pair of glasses or whatever, and the average consumer can just put it on whenever. I reckon that's when it will become really, really accessible. Yeah, I don't think the form factor is going to matter that much. 
it used to be that carrying around a slab of black glass was inappropriate in society as well. But society changes when the capabilities are compelling enough. If it's still a pair of ski goggles, but it's compelling enough, people are going to wear it and not care what you think. In fact, yeah. you won't care either because you'll probably have your own pair. Yep. Yeah. So I'm curious, the number of frameworks and languages and ways you can develop stuff today is massive, right? There's, yes. There's, there's probably too many options, right? And it's a blessing and a curse. You, you can pick and choose what you want, but, but you know, is that what you want going to be there next year? Do you see that compacting and having fewer frameworks and languages, or do you see it just exploding, you know, like you said, when we get to the point maybe when we're doing a visor? I think it's a cycle, right? You see a massive array of frameworks when there isn't a good answer to a problem. When a good answer emerges, or several good answers, then you consolidate. So the diversity of tooling around mobile development is a clear indicator that none of them are great. They all come with a certain amount of pain. And right. so you choose your pain, right? And, and, and grass is always greener on the other side kind of thing. JavaScript, where like, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago, we had like a different framework popping up every couple of months. And now it's kind of consolidated to just merely being like Angular and, and React and, and Vue. And yeah, like so you, and you see that, that stability now has come from, we have three distinct philosophies of front-end web development now that are crystallizing around Angular, React, and Vue, right? Uh, but, that's, and that's interesting. Yeah, but even then, you saw Angular adopt a lot of the ideas out of React because they sure. were good, right? And so, you know, yeah, there's a difference of philosophy, but a lot of the basic concepts are the same because it's still consolidated around the ideas that work. And then it was kind of the way that we put some of it together varies, right? Yeah. Well, look at, at asynchronous programming with a weight and, and, and sync, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you go back to before that stuff shipped, there was the task parallel library. Like there was a dozen different approaches to trying to do, utilize more cores in your code. Why did async and await win? And I, and I say async and await of one, not only because in the .NET community grabbed it, but for crying out loud, they implemented it in the latest versions of C++. It's showing up in all sorts and of JavaScript. languages. When the other languages grab syntax from you, it's a pretty clear sign. You found the best way. And yes. so it'd be the same sort of thing. You're, you're watching these last three planet-sized libraries, not the, so the weight, but the, the number of people using them, orbiting each other, grabbing each other's best bits. You know, is there a consolidation? I don't know. Does it matter? Not really. You know, when there's 20, we have a problem. When there's three, they're pretty okay. That sounds like a settled sort of space. Even in the mobile space, you say, hey, if you're programming in C Sharp, you're probably using Xamarin. If mm -hmm. you're programming mobile in the Java space, you're probably using Ionic. If you're not, you know, concerned about a super popular language, just looking for an interesting philosophy, go look at Flutter. You know, you are starting to see it settle out a bit in the mobile space now as well. This is the normal cycle of us having new technical problems that need to be resolved. We get a plethora of attempts and we watch where we consolidate and then we put more energy into those things. I actually think that that makes perfect sense. And it makes me think of what you've done with the history.net, both the um, presentations and the book you're writing, 
seeing that, you think about it, you can see that cycle uh, for Microsoft and .NET. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, .NET started out as a tool for enterprise developers, largely have an alternative to Java because Microsoft wasn't allowed to make Java a version of Java anymore. They did for several years, but then there was a, a court injunction that made it, you know, they weren't allowed to do that anymore. And it was centered on Windows, right? When, when it shipped in 2002, it was 22 languages, one platform, which was literally a direct mockery of Java saying any platform, one language. <laughs> and and they and I would argue they manifest that dream successfully that vision by 2005 by .NET two mm-hmm. they'd gotten there they'd made a really robust set of enterprise class tools and a, and a platform for building web and client side apps but right. the market was changing mobile was becoming huge and desktop operating systems were coming less relevant. And Microsoft had bound themselves to Windows. They didn't think any other way. And so they couldn't see the, the sort of the gradual decrease in significance of an operating system. It was an internet world. And what OS you ran, who cared? They tried to make it cross-platform, right? It was lots of efforts on the XML front with the, the various WS star standards, but that was just too brutal for people to use. And it ultimately, you know, turns itself into JSON and HTTPS endpoints, right? But those are all that twists and turns. So did you start uh, developing in .NET before you joined Carl on .NET Rocks? Yes. I, I, I remember uh, I was already a uh, speaker and a book author, uh, interior architecture guy. I had been a visual basic person for a while. I jumped full in on active server pages. I had written training materials and stuff around ASP because I thought COM against web made a lot of sense, right? That, that was a pretty cool way to go. We had some threading problems and things, but that's fine. You know, that's what happens. And so I got included in the SDRs back when Microsoft did this. It was, they called them software design reviews. If you, would, if you were sufficiently notable, they would invite you down to sort of show you what they were going to do. And I remember meeting a very young Scott Guthrie alongside several other folks showing off ASP plus this was the prototype and they hadn't come up with a .NET name at that point they were talking about a very different way to build web pages and so uh and I thought it was a terrible idea and I was wrong you know they that was the those early days right the the, dot, the gestation of .NET took several years I mean I saw that in 99 and they wouldn't ship till 2002 so there was a lot going on in that intervening period, not the least of which was the, the whole Java crisis. Do you know why they called it .NET? Um, is it because it was built for the internet or something like that? Or yeah, like- I mean, that was part of it. And it was also, you know, the and I, I talk about this a bit in the videos and things, and it's certainly a context in the book. To understand that by 2000, Microsoft has gone through this debate with the Department of Justice uh, that results in Bill Gates stepping down as CEO and Steve Ballmer taking over, and they've been declared a pernicious monopoly and are, are being ordered to break up. There's going to supposed to be a, a company that does the operating systems and a separate company that does everything else. And Bomber's first job, and it takes him almost two years to pull it off, is to get a consent decree to keep the company together by being a more open company. If you need access to the source code of Windows to understand how your software is behaving, we'll provide you access to the source code. And in the midst of all of this, this is 2000, 2001, right? He takes over in January of 2000 to be CEO. He'll get his consent decree through by November of 2001, right? Two years worth of effort. In the middle of that, the thing that will become .NET is being developed. And so 
part and parcel of them showing the government, hey, we're a more open company now, is that they published the specification of C-sharp and the runtime as ECMAS specifications in public. And yeah, the name .NET was part of that, is that we're, this is a, a new way of programming the internet with open standards, right? We're an open company now. So it was as much a positioning piece as anything else. But if they hadn't published those two ECMAS specifications, there wouldn't have been a mono. I mean, that's where Miguel Diacanza jumps in, right? And he, gotcha. he, he yeah. does, he, at an O'Reilly open source conference, he says, hey, look, I've been looking over this ECMA specification for C Sharp. I think it's a brilliant language, and I'm going to implement a version that we can run in Linux. Oh, I was going to say, just refresh me on the history. So is mono is what .NET Core is built on, um, on top of, is that? No, mono is it's a completely separate thing. The new role of Mono today is part of the Blazor project with the WebAssembly because it's still written in C++. Ever since uh, Roslyn came around where C Sharp is written in C Sharp, that wasn't going to work for that. But no, Mono is a completely, it was always a completely separate white box implementation of .NET. And actually, I wanted to dig into that. And, and I'm jumping ahead like eight years. Mm. In one of your presentations, you actually talk about, right, late aughts. Microsoft's not sure what they're going to do and where C Sharp is going to go. And, you know, Mono gets sold um, when, when Novell, you know, goes away, basically. Yep. And then they and create Xamarin. buys up the remains. Yeah. And they create Xamarin and Xamarin and Mono, right, are, are basically a way of showing, hey, look what we can do with this language in, in all these different places. And it gave Microsoft some ideas of, how they can move forward. Yeah, it depends on who you ask as you really okay. look at it that way. It's, it's the, the inflection moment is in 2011. Okay. And that's when, when they re also released Mono for Android, right? When what Miguel had done that was brilliant, like the Mono, the framework, I'd used it in some projects, but it was not particularly well known or particularly popular. And Linux mm -hmm. folks were always kind of suspicious of Microsoft technology and Miguel because of it. So it, was, it always sat in this weird area, but same time that Microsoft is struggling with the relevance of C-sharp because JavaScript seems to be winning all the things, he's made versions of C-sharp that compile into iOS and Android apps. So, and it's, you know, almost exactly the same time. So the, there's a serendipity about that. I think it's, it's delicious, but there's more things going on than that. I mean, the, the biggest thing is when on the Microsoft side is when Scott Guthrie moved over to work on Azure, because Azure definitely needed his help. Hmm. He brought a team, a dev team with him, the web team. And the web team then was essentially separated from .NET. And so they were doing their own things under the guidance of, of Scott Guthrie. And one of the things they were working on was uh, tooling that was operating system independent because it had, it was just going to run in the cloud. So they were taking cross-platform bits and starting to experiment with them. And one of the things they experimented with was what would become the Kestrel web server. And remember that .NET already had cross-platform bits out of Silverlight. So if you, were, you know, going back to Wei's original question about .NET Core, the original bits of .NET Core are actually from Silverlight. They made .NET run on the Mac, and that meant they had a version of the CLR that ran on, on a, you know, under the hood, OS X is Unix right? Or version of a flavor of Linux. And so right. they'd already solved that problem. That's where, the, that's where those bits actually come from. It's interesting to hear you talk about Flash and Silverlight and how Microsoft went away from it because of, of Apple and how they were handling plugins in their ecosystem. Yeah. 
Well, and, and ultimately, I think Jobs was motivated by the fact that Flash murdered the battery of the iPad. Like, that's mm-hmm. what he cared about. Right. And, but he wasn't wrong when he talked about plugins as a virus factor, because it is, right? No, no question that was an issue. He never mentioned Silverlight in his thoughts on Flash. He cares right. about Flash. And, you know, the, the joke about the name Silverlight, it's not really a joke, but it's the argument that this is where the name actually comes from. In the old flash bulbs, the mechanical flash bulbs for cameras, mm. they have a filament inside them that you pump a lot of electricity into. It makes that bright flash. The debris that's left in the flash bulb is called silver light. Yeah. So okay. silver light is what you're left with after flash. A little that's bit of cool. out there. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's very cool. Well, in the original version of Silverlight, when you look back at V1, it didn't have .NET in it. It was a media player, right? They were working mm-hmm. to do stuff for companies like Netflix, where they wanted a, a variable speed media player. So it worked with a special version of IIS. You could make multiple encodements of your video files for different resolutions, different sizes. And the codec on the client side through that first version of Silverlight could detect the amount of bandwidth available. And so you could figure out what resolution or, uh, of codec to run at any given time. It's later on with .NET 3 that they introduce a version of the CLR and they start going MVVM and including XAML and so forth. But the early editions were really about media. It was a competitor to Flash. Yeah. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So then in the last decade, you know, it kind of seemed like it slowed down the evolution of .NET for a while there and, until Core kind of you know, picked up their pace again, I think. Well, and one of the things you have to argue is weren't they done? Didn't do what it was supposed to do. You know, it's one of the interesting problems when you're building proprietary software. If you don't ship a new version every year to 18 months, people start screaming about you being dead. There's no concept of being done. But if you're open source, true open source, that is, you're taking community participation, you know, you're part of the overall day debate, the way that C Sharp is built today, you know, and they did, it took them a while to get to that point. There is an argument by your customers. Hey, don't change that. Like, there's no reason to go further. Like, it does what we want it to do. Should this be separate? So I don't think, I think you're only allowed to be done in the open source community. You can't be done when it's proprietary software. Gotcha. And I do feel like, I guess, right, having that, that option, right, to be done and look at something else has made a world of difference. Because .NET Core and .NET Framework are, you know, completely different ideas from different times, right, how to approach it. Sure. But, and, I, and I think you're starting to see with the way they, in .NET 3, they introduced the Windows SDKs for WinForms and WPF as sort of a path forward on this. You know, there was always an argument, the Windows argument, as well as the .NET argument, if you make sure you put everything in the box so everybody has everything so they don't have to go and find stuff. But that just makes it all resonate as changes need to come along. Now that we live in the new get, apt get sort of world where you can pull the bits together pretty much on demand, it makes more sense to break these things apart and ship them separately so they don't resonate with change. The show we did recently, it goes back to November now on, on .NET Rocks about WinUI 3. You know, mm-hmm. Towards the end of that show, 
they really are talking about the fact that they're going to decompose pieces of windows now, especially on the UI part, because people don't want windows to change constantly. They just want the UX stuff to keep improving. So why mess with the kernel and changing the you know big things like that when we could just be bundling these UX pieces as part of our app? But isn't that a concern that some people will have voice that Windows as a service is going to end up being more expensive on the consumer, similar to how Adobe went to the cloud and now you can't purchase a version of the software and own it. You have to pay every year. Right. Well, uh, and, and, and Adobe is not a particularly innovative company, right? It's kind of where right. software goes to die or rather yeah. be bundled in your $100 a month package. <laughs> But Microsoft seems to be resisting that. They're Good. far more decomposed. Yeah. I think the push we're getting against Windows right now is shipping new versions of Windows every quarter is crazy. Mm. Nobody wants to install them. And so we don't, they don't get the good bits or the bad bits. That gotcha. if you break these pieces apart, so because the core OS doesn't need to change much, it's pretty good. It's just the new bits coming on top. I'm a dev. I'm trying to build a client-side app. You're trying to tell me I have to tell my customers they all have to be running Windows 10 version 18.03 to be able to use my app. I'm just not going to use those features. But if I could bundle the 18.03 UI bits in my app so that I don't have to care which version of 10 you're running, that mm -hmm. makes my life a heck of a lot easier. How do you think .NET 5, I guess, right, is what it's going to be? Mm -hmm. um, we've had a couple of conversations on the podcast about how they're actually going to be taking the the very uh, different runtimes, right, and and different uh, ways of managing their code, and they're going to build it into one. So going forward, Mono and .NET Core, and you know, and uh, Xamarin, they're all going to be running on the same base. How do you see that benefiting? Don't include Mono in this conversation because okay. it's doing its own thing right now. Like, okay. I, I'm, I won't talk, I, you know, Mono is an interesting character. It's got an interesting life right now in the Blazor scenario. Mm -hmm. So they are trying to maintain the standard so that the feature set stays compatible. Mm -hmm. But, you know, your first real break moment, they've, they've been maintaining two copies of .NET. Right. I can never know how to call the sort of classic or standard version, the correct name. I don't know what, the, what it's supposed to be. And Core. The break has come in three with the C Sharp 8, right? Because C Sharp 8 does not run on the standard framework. It only runs on core. Now, why? Why is this true? Because I think at some point they're now building features in C Sharp 8 that are dependent on features of core that don't exist in standard. And they're looking at what it took to implement them in standard and going, this is too expensive, hmm. too hard to do. And odds are standard people aren't going to use it anyway. And so you see the real future that's coming up here, which is... The part of .NET standard that is core, those sort of base libraries and so forth, that's going away from standard. That they're taking apart standard and saying, what are the bits that are unique to standard that need to live on? And we'll bring those up into five. And what are the bits that are, could all be run by core? So that they start maintaining only one version of .NET core. And they change it to just calling it five. Is it going to be a perfect lift and shift so that you can take your, you know, what I, the advice I've been given on .NET Rocks is make sure you're up to 4.8 so that mm -hmm. whatever comes next is going to move the easiest for 4.8. Is it going to be seamless the first time they push out 5? I'm betting no. But maybe a year after, you know, when they get more of the fixes in place, Microsoft is deeply incented to main one, maintain one version of .NET. And the easiest way to do that is to allow people to move their software easily over to this merged version. 
Gotcha. But there's clearly stuff that's been peeled off, right? Web mm-hmm. forms ain't going to make it, <laughs> right? WCF ain't going to make it, right? There's a few good reasons for that, right? Fundamentally, both those products are bound to IIS. Yeah, yeah. And that just isn't, it, okay. you, you can't unbind them. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I totally understand that, it, yeah. But well, I was going to say one of the things that Sean and I have talked about is, you know, while he's not going to uh, have support for web forms or WCF or whatever, he's got his Blazor, and he's all about Blazor. He's he's already said he's going to convert everything that he's developed into Blazor, right, Sean? <laughs> That's you know. <laughs> well, and I'm already running sessions like that inside a Dev Intersection, right? You know, That's in right. the spring show, you're going to go. We're going to have a blazer for web forms people because it seems like the first logical path. Right. I, I look at the way the .NET ecosystem has rallied around server side blazer and said, okay, every. I'm not going to. We can say yes or no in terms of the quality of the technology one way or the other, but it clearly is a path forward where everything else was learn a new way. And so here is a, you know, a very similar philosophy, this server-side philosophy, and it is clearly a way forward. Right. And it's amazing how far it's come in just a few years, right? From well, and, Sanderson's just demo out of nowhere, just trying something different. Well, I think that's typical Sanderson, right? The man thinks in a level beyond most people. Anytime I sit and chat, get a chance to talk to Steve, I'm in awe, just the way that he thinks. But he was working on the WebAssembly technology, right? Mm-hmm. The fact right. that he did right. it against Razor technology, where the name Blazor comes from, and then as the team worked on it, came up with this model that is server-side, because the WebAssembly stuff still has issues. So, you know, I'm not sure when the client stuff's actually going to show, show up, and just seemed to light a spark. Hmm. And again, I don't know that they knew this was the spark that was going to happen, but so many people reacted so sharply to server-side blazer that it just it has its own energy and i I mean i'm you know i was surprised as everyone else i'm happy to jump on board but this is not what sanderson originally built at all this is the razor team grabbing onto this coming up with some server implements and folks going wow no love it let's go and there are a ton of ben uh, benefits uh just doing it from the server side yeah absolutely Especially if you're talking about, when I think about typical web forms apps out in the world, they're internal apps, right? They're inside of your organization. They've been around for a while. Like the, the main issue you always have with server side is scale, right? It's a, hey, if 10,000 people hit it, what am I going to do? It's like, well, for starters, don't let 10,000 people hit it, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's probably not what it's for. Although at the same time, you've also got the cloud. You could dial the knob up fairly high. There is that option, but more saliently, it's like you're talking about internal application that has been begging for modernization for a while, and here's all these modern tools following very much the same model. And I think a lot of this energy is coming from the developers in, that have done .NET in the past and now saying, okay, now I can you know, get my user experience in the rich model, and I don't have to le- learn Angular or React or JavaScript Anything like that, I can yeah, just... Yeah, something I can relate to. Yeah. Oh, and hey, Telerik's got a set of controls, and I, my company already pays for those controls. In fact, I use them in my web forms apps. Yep. I think that's part of this particular energy, is that it touches all the things that somebody who's been maintaining the software for a while knows. And it, look, if I'm, the, if I'm an architect, if I'm, or if I'm the CTO, and you're coming at me with a couple of dozen or a hundred web forms apps saying, hey, I want to re-engineer these all in Angular. 
I can't justify the cost. Right. I'm not saying you couldn't do an angular. You absolutely could. But for what? Yep. More broadly, do you think um, um, WebAssembly, when it does finally become more stable in itself, is that going to be the 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 future, I guess, of, of the web, um, not just for Microsoft technologies, but for for other companies as well. Well, the, you hit a really interesting point, way, which is with what we happen in WebAssembly, we're suddenly saying, you know, JavaScript penetrated all markets because it had this unique market, the web market first, that you couldn't ignore. So you always had to have some JavaScript skilled people because you can't ignore web. And suddenly, the fact that you had, you know, Electron and could build client side apps. Mm-hmm. with JavaScript and you had Ionic and you could build mobile apps in JavaScript and so forth. And then and JavaScript's got its issues, right? There's no question you can build sustainable software around it. That's why TypeScript's so popular and the various mm-hmm. testing frameworks and so forth. It's like, how do you manage sustainable dynamic language code? It can be done. It's just a way of working. But with mm-hmm. WebAssembly, we suddenly penetrated a market that was JavaScript only. Or what if you could code in the language you wanted and it ran in a browser too, right? Mm. So now the browser is simply a host for code. Now, if I put my IT hat on, right, like I'm the run as guy, I don't like when you need to install software on my desktop machines. I just don't like it. It's a risk every time. Pareto's law applies. We roll out to 1,000 desktops, 80% of them, 800 are going to work fine, 20% of them, 200 are not, right? Then there's going to be some kind of fix, and we're going to pick up 80% of that 200. So 160 are going to be fine, and 40 are not. And we'll do some other fixes, and we'll pick up the next 80%. 32 are fine, and eight of them are just really broken. And that's every flip and deploy. I've already given you a security context on the desktop. It's the browser. That's why, generally speaking, in, in IT-controlled environments, we do browser-based apps. Is we just avoid all those problems. Well, if you can now program in the language of your choice through into the browser and have the capabilities you need, awesome. Solved problem. I, I wanted to tell you that about five years ago, I, I was at a Dev Intersection conference, and there was at one of the panel sessions, and I asked the question, when is the day going to come where we can write in the browser something besides JavaScript? And their answer was, no, 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 too many security issues, things like that. And it's like, I couldn't figure that out. You know, it's like, you know, we've got C Sharp and VB on the server. Well, that doesn't really make that much more security issues. But I saw a day where there was a demand for writing something besides JavaScript in the browser. And I asked it at one of your conferences. And the challenge now is you have to push the language down into the browser as well, right? We have a runtime space in in the form of WebAssembly, and your big complaint now is the footprint's just too large. And so they're doing everything they can to try and get that footprint down. Like, that's the race, is how do you get these other languages into browsers and their compiled pieces into into browsers, pieces of the framework and things, so that it's manageable. It's a reasonable size, right? The JavaScript and the DOM are already in the browser, Mm -hmm. and the other things are not. So... That's going to be the challenge, but you're right. It's a, it's a good security context. It's a place to write software from. It has a s- sufficient set of capabilities and everybody's got one. So it's not a bad way for us to do programming. The so, thing that gets interesting here is when a new context comes along, when the goggles come along and mm-hmm. disrupt this model. I mean, we're going to need a web assembly for the goggles. I don't know. Like That's part of the issue we're starting to think in terms of now is how, how do we contain all these different uh, programming environments into the various platforms they need to live on. 
Well, I think it's a matter of if uh, or when, not if. And Sean and I have talked, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to write all your code in C Sharp, right? Yeah. And do you think, you know, when they get there, that it will simplify it for people who knew C Sharp, but it will also allow other people to get into development easier because they have to focus on fewer things? I think C Sharp certainly has its strengths in that respect, mm-hmm. right? That, that uh, people like programming in a typed language in this, the strengths that, that C Sharp brings to the table. But it does take time, and right. uh, only so certain people see it. There, there's also more contemporary language. Like C Sharp's long in the two. It's certainly mm-hmm. yeah. you know, in a groove right now and has modernized itself very well. But uh, there's no guarantees that it's going to dominate anything long term. Just uh, when it comes to statically typed languages, they're clearly the winner at this point. One thing that kind of started out, you know, any .NET language for one platform, and it's now going any .NET language for any platform. Yes. Well, and 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 you and you hit on an interesting point, which is when you start thinking in terms of something like F Sharp and other. uh, Does it make sense for other languages that would work against that runtime as well? One thing I'm wondering about too is that uh, I remember, and it's still around, but it it never really like took off big. Was Meteor, and so you know, it's not just I can do .NET on the front and the back and kind of do the same kinds of things, but I may have an end-to-end system now that's designed to work together with you know Blazor or something like it on the front end and you know .NET Core on the back end. Yeah, well, and the whole idea of generating client right, of Mm non-coded client is an interesting one. When you're talking about sort of standard metaphors, your forms over data models, like certain classes of applications, you can absolutely automate that. I mean, uh, you know, or rest in peace, light switch. But I look over at what's happening with power apps in the Azure space, and it's very much the same thing. It's like, all right, generated client and certain generated pieces of backend, but you can custom code backend pieces as well. So, we we certainly got energy and continue to have energy in that space. It's, it's an ongoing uh, development standards. But I think if you really want to be a coder, you're going to be interested in what happens as these different client devices take off. And obviously the augmented reality one being one of the largest. Mm-hmm. So then how, how did you move into conference management? Uh, I've always been in conference management it's almost <laughs> as long as I've been writing. The, 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 the section music. Devisation came along in 2012, but at the, by the time by 2012, I'd already been making conferences for oh boy, you know, 15, 20 years in one form or another, right? And the reason it started was that there was a team of that I had worked with for years and years that was being dismantled by its parent company, and you sort of get to a place where it's like these are the people I like working with, they they're the people I trust that are competent and they need a home. And also the, the issue of hypocrisy. You've been complaining that everybody does conferences wrong. Well, are you going to do your own or not? And uh, I guess I said yes. And uh, it's, a, <laughs> it's a remarkable source of stress. There's nothing quite like, you know, signing a year, a, a contract a year in advance for something that would bankrupt you and then making sure it doesn't bankrupt you. Well, you're doing a good job there. I've been to well, four. thank you. I enjoy them that. all the time. You know, I like all the different variety of sessions. And uh, you know the cross between SQL intersection and Angular .NET everything there. So well, and that's the intersection part, right? Is that I, I, I mean, there's always certain that we build a kind of show that where we know the typical attendees not paying their own ticket, they're they're taking it to their employer and saying, I want to go. And so I make sure I have the sessions in there that you can point at your employer and say, this is what you wanted me to learn. I can go get it here. But then I'm also hoping you're going to taste the buffet, right? You're going to 
dip into some other areas and explore some things that you can bring back to your company and say, hey, you know, we haven't thought about this, but I spent an hour listening to this brilliant person talk about this technology, and I think it might be able to help us. Many times you don't know, you, you know, lots of people come to a conference with a piece of paper in hand of questions I need answered, and then arguably the most valuable thing they bring back is something that wasn't on the paper. That to me, I've done my show well, when not only do you got all your questions answered, we got three ideas you didn't know you should have. I think that's also just good advice for the for attending conferences, right? Is that you you kind of go with an idea of what you want, but be willing to go, yeah, try out something that isn't even in the ballpark of a list. Yeah, and it's something I you know I I I rarely speak at my own show. It seems a little weird to do that, but I I MC, so I do the openings for the keynotes and things like that. And I'm that, that's when I would say that it's like, listen. You know, you're at a buffet. I hope you'll taste some things you've never tried before. And don't feel bad. Like if a few minutes into the session, you realize it's not for you. Nobody's going to get angry with you if you leave. Like go, you're the customer here. We want you to be happy, but try some things. Many of the best ideas are stuff you've never seen before. So where are you normally um, hosting these um, dev intersection um, conferences? Are they mainly in the States? Or they- they're, they're in the U.S., yeah. So we do a, a show in the fall in Las Vegas and a show in the spring in Orlando. And the reasons are they're big enough, they have sufficient space, they're easy to fly into, they're nice places to go, but not too nice. You know, I've, I've put on a conference in Hawaii, that's a separate set of problems. You know, we, the, it's the spring show, which is the first week of April, lines up with Easter and spring break for a reason. Lots of folks come to Orlando, go to the conference, and then have their family there, and they go to Disney World and things like that. Like, I'm not... I'm not avoiding those sorts of things to try and embrace that, that, that we can work with people that way. Do you think you can, uh, you can add one to New Orleans? Uh, you know, I love doing shows in New Orleans. I did all the tech heads in New Orleans. We've yeah. looked at the location a bunch of times to see, is there a way to make it, to make it work? I'm certain, certainly not outside of realms. It's like, it's a cross between Disneyland and Las Vegas, honestly. Yeah. But yeah, the next city I would add if I was going to do another show in in the north in U.S. would be New Orleans. Like it's it's a fantastic location. But uh, and we've cool. experimented in Europe. But you know the Europeans have their own shows too. So you know uh, we, there's there's possibilities there. We've talked about spinning off verticals. Like we've done we did a hmm. dedicated Angular show for a while that drew a particular audience. I like that we do it in a hotel where. Largely, we fill the place with attendees. So if you're down in the lobby bar, like everybody in that bar is at the show. Talk to anyone. That's sort of our model, the approach we like to take for those, things, those sorts of things. And uh, in the same way, when you try and spin off a of vertical, it's like it's just got enough size that everybody here is focused on that thing. I like the diversity of topics, but I understand that people want to talk to the people they know that, talk, that know the similar thing. All right. Does anybody have any last questions before we get to picks? Uh, lots, but it would take us two more hours. So. <laughs> you haven't asked me about the geek outs yet. Yeah, I mentioned a little bit there. You're going to spin that off into its own podcast? You're I, I promised I would do, finish the history of .NET first. Gotcha. Uh, people have asked me for ways to do to, to, to keep the geek outs off. I mean, when we were publishing three .NET rocks a week, mm-hmm. I would do one show a month that was a geek out. That was just a whatever topic the audience wanted. I like to do the research. We're not doing not making that many dot and rocks anymore, so it's been harder to put them in. I don't want to take people away from the technical content they care about. It turns out I have a limited amount of research energy, and all of that is being consumed by the book right now. But my passion for this array of STEM topics doesn't 
doesn't stop. So when the book is finished, I'll, I'll look at doing it as its own show and, and it'll it'd probably be a weekly, but probably one subject a month. It's just, you need to do several shows on any given subject to really explore it. Are you doing any other shows other than Donut Rocks? Because you, in the past, you've done a few other ones, haven't you? Well, I still do Run As Radio, which is the every Wednesday. That's an IT-oriented show. Uh, that's every Wednesday since April 11th, 2007. So we're at 667 episodes now. And yeah, Run As is current, or Donut Rocks is currently at one a week as well, which is, you know, I mean, you guys make podcasts. You know how much effort it is. And uh, just, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, Chuck definitely knows. Yeah. I have some idea. The thing with the geek out topic area is that I think it needs a certain amount of video as well. Like this, often you're explaining a complicated enough subject that, that having an animation would really help. So we're going to have to play with format. Exactly. The best way to communicate that. But only podcasts allow you to talk long enough to give you a long format that you can Mm -hmm, really dive into a subject. So I think the, the, the various media all serve their purpose. Right. And it's still going to be a while before you're, out with the book, right? I'm expecting early the, in 2020 to get a first draft together, and then we'll, we'll probably do a Kickstarter and see how many copies we can sell. We'll make it a tour. So I'm, I'm, you know, unlike most book authors, I don't mind going on tour and and talking to developers. It's something I do all the time anyway. Part of doing that Kickstarter will be where do you want me to go? Well, you know, what places uh, do I want to go to? If a company wants me to show up there and and talk about t- tell those stories, I'll do that as well. And that'll sort of give us a shape of what that looks like. But I could easily see spending a year on the road just talking about the book and, and sort of celebrating where .NET, you know, .NET has completely transformed itself in this past 20 or so years. That's a heck of a thing to pull off without we're redoing the tooling too. I mean, how, you know, normal, the normal cadence of software development is pretty straightforward. You build a platform, then you put tools on top of it. Then actually the platform hits its limits, so you build a new platform, a new set of tools. Microsoft redid the platform without replacing the tools. Like, who does that? That's, it's a unique moment, I think, in, in history. And it's something I think worth celebrating. Absolutely. Yay, I get to keep my Visual Studio. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Over the last many years, we've had a ton of terrific people on JavaScript Jabber. And one thing that I realized over the last few years was that we were missing out on some of the real story there. So we would talk about the topic that they were experts in and help you keep up on what's going on in the JavaScript community. But I felt like we had these terrific people on there and we didn't really talk about who they were. So I pulled together a show called My JavaScript Story. And what we do is we interview the people that we've had on JavaScript Jabber or people just from the community. Maybe we'll have you on sometime. And we talk about how they got into programming, how they got into JavaScript, what they're working on, what they're well known for, and how they've developed their career. And some of the people are extremely well known and come from really interesting backgrounds. So if you're curious about how your JavaScript heroes got into JavaScript, then go check out my JavaScript story. You can find it at myjsstory.com. All right. So, I mean, we've gone for quite a while. I think we're a little over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's get into picks here. And I guess I'll start first because I want to be the first one to pick the new Star Wars. So it's not out yet, but... The uh, Force Awakens. (laughs) I signed up... For, for day one, so I'm going to go see it. Attack of the Clones? No. Um, the, the Rise of Skywalker, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so I'm going to pick that. And I'm also going to pick you know, the Dev Intersection Conferences. I, I said I went four times. I enjoyed it all four times. If you want to hear more stories by Richard, he's got a few more that he didn't talk about here. So go listen to those. 
Okay, I'll uh, I'll go yep. next. Mine is it's actually has to do with Microsoft. Um, when Google killed Inbox, I couldn't go back to Gmail. I just couldn't do it. So I went to Outlook and found the feature in Outlook where you can manage your subscriptions, right? If it's spam or something that you're getting, you don't need anymore, you can unsubscribe right there. And 80% of the time it works. Now, one thing, go to devchat.tv and subscribe to our newsletter and don't unsubscribe to it, but you can unsubscribe from all the rest of them. (laughs) All right, what's your pick, Why? I couldn't actually think of anything I'd done interesting recently, which is a little bit depressing, but so I thought I'd give my pick uh, this week to to a service called um, Let's Encrypt, which is a certificate authority that allows you to generate SSL certificates for free. So, because, you know, it's 2019, every website should actually have HTTPS, but, True. but like, it's just, you know, just not just because um, if you don't have it, it'll be, your traffic will be unencrypted, but just, you know, it'll affect things like SEO and things, but... I think historically a, a barrier from a lot of small business owners and stuff like that is just you just have to pay for the cert, you know. But really, unless you're like a like a big bank or something and you need extended validation, you don't actually need to to pay for a cert. Um, you can essentially just use like Let's Encrypt, and you know. And I think the best thing is it, it, you can actually automate it, so it'll it'll just like reissue a cert for you periodically. So, which is another reason a small business might want to use it. You know, you don't have to actually worry about it expiring. So. Yeah, I thought it'd be um, good to remind people that it, well, you know, that it's there, that that the service is there. I think so. Okay, so I think we should all pick Chuck's book. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> when is that out, Chuck? Uh, out the ebook version is available now on Amazon. The paperback version came out on Tuesday, so you can get that uh, as well right now. The audio book is something that I'm going to record over the Christmas break. And so it should come out the first part of January 2020. Good and too. it's the, the Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. So yeah. So if you're looking for a job, I've had a few people contact me and say it's also really good for freelancers, which is kind of what I based it on, was just how I found clients as well as you know jobs that I liked when I was freelancing. I also had one person say, I read the book and then I realized that I needed to be in these couple of places in order to find the kind of people I wanted to hire. So... Oh, yeah. I've talked to a few other people. I was going to do the next book on how to stay current in tech, but I'm really tempted after talking to a lot of people who have given me that feedback to write the book on how to hire developers. <laughs> a lot of people are really bad at that. So, Well, and they tie, it ties your two books together well, too. Yes. Right? Yep. And the book's totally affordable. So yeah, go check it out. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. $2.99 on Amazon. It's $14.99 for the paperback. I think both of those are less than a large Starbucks. <laughs> right in north in new orleans <laughs> uh, yeah 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 so did you have another pick chuck or, or is that i was going to shout out about that i've got some other things in the works so like caleb said get on the mailing list because that's probably where that stuff's going to come out i'm not going to go into it here just because i don't have enough information to really pitch it but i have thrown this i an idea i'm working on i'll probably do either do a kickstarter or just to allow people to pre-order. But I've pitched it to a number of people and I've gotten an overwhelming, hey, when, where is that? When do I get it? Kind of a response. And the, the handful of people that looked at me and said, I don't know if I would actually use a service like that. All of them have come back to me after like an hour or two and said, you know, the more I think about it, the more I want it. So, 
get on the mailing list and uh, you'll definitely start getting that kind of thing. I'm also going to be putting a lot of the advice stuff from the books that I am working on or fleshing out ideas for into the mailing list starting at the beginning of the year. So if you're looking for career advice and things like that, I'm going to start there and then we'll kind of see where we end up. All right. So Richard, is there something you want to let our listeners know about that you're interested in lately? Oh, I can't believe you guys didn't bring up The Mandalorian. Oh, so good. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I think I think it's been brought up everywhere else, right? Okay. So it's it's well. it's now in our our collective conscience, our consciousness, just like Frozen Two. <laughs> yeah. Somebody has little kids. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and my friend with a little girl is cursing me because I said, "Don't worry, when when your baby's born, Frozen will move on. There'll be something else." Nope, Frozen all the time. <laughs> I just tell yeah. them to let it go now these days. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, for a tech thing, I hope you're playing with Poly if you're a .NET developer. The Poly mm-hmm. library on GitHub is part of the .NET Foundation. That's something everybody needs. Just a, the, It's a set of, of libraries for just dealing with failure, retry processes, and so forth, the polyproject.org. And, and for a gadget, as a, uh, a smoker of meat and, and somebody who just like, you know, likes to make food well, the meter probe, I mean, perfect Christmas present for anybody who's a griller. M e a t e r meter. They're, they're a little pricey, but they, you know, it's got good software on your phone. You plug it in, tell it, tell it what you're going to cook. It'll estimate the finish time. It'll warn. It'll even, it even figures out the right amount of time to rest a, a steak afterward. Wow, cool. I can't, can't recommend them enough. The meter probes. Okay. I think I need one of those. You inspired me so many years ago. So I've I've eaten Richard's smoked meat. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, that's right. You came to that party. I came to that party. Oh, boy. If, if you haven't moved, I've been to your house. So You've been to my house. I have not moved. So, yeah. Um, the way that Richard and I met was I was invited to a conference called DevTeach. And I wound up being on a panel kind of in an impromptu way that .NET Rocks was putting together. We were talking about agile development. Mm-hmm. And... Anyway, the the speaker dinner was at Richard's house, and <laughs> Richard smoked a bunch of meat. I think we it was a catered dinner because it was enough people. It's just like too many, but there was enough people who said like you're gonna cook something, right? So I used my big box smoker and I made twenty two racks of ribs, uh-huh. something like that. So everybody got a couple of rib bones because it was sixty or seventy people. It was a lot. Yeah, that wasn't bear meat, was it? Uh, you no, know, it was pig. Bear. <laughs> it was pig. Now we don't eat bears. Bears eat bears. the bears around here eat garbage. You do not want to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, you've inspired me because I now have a box smoker that sits on my porch. I have a sous vide machine, and I've gotten really into the grilling and cooking of meat. So, <laughs> um, by the way, those little meter probes—if you're careful with them—you can put them in a piece of meat inside a sous vide bag, and they'll work because they're completely oh, really? wireless. Yeah. Dude, it's a cool gizmo. Like, mm, yeah. I know what I want for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and we're the worst people to buy for. I really should be doing a shopping list for the geek in your life. These are, these are some things. But that, yeah, I can't, can't recommend them enough. Yeah, I am hard to buy for. I, <laughs> yeah, my wife, my poor wife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. It was a great show. And thank you, Richard, again, for spending the time with us. Yeah, just enjoyable. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Yeah, this was a good talk. Yeah, and one last thing for our listeners, I want to let them know that I recently changed my Twitter handle to make it a little more memorable. So if you're looking for me on Twitter, 
I am now .NET superhero. So. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to get Sean a cape. Cape, cape. No, capes are bad, right? No capes. <laughs> no capes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. We'll check you out on the next episode. Thank you. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.